You are now listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K, produced by the Carson Institute, which aims to provide a conversational space to discuss, debate, and explore answers to America's most urgent questions on racial, economic, and social injustice. Welcome to our final conversation, Black History Month conversations at the Carson Institute for Race, Peace, and Social Justice. We have collaborated with the Baltimore Sun. I am delighted today uh, for this final conversation. One, because I consider Reverend Dr. Heber Brown to be a friend of mine. And two, is because I'm also an admirer of his work and I encourage people to consider his vision. So there's a lot to discuss today. I wanna to introduce Kamat Uhai, the Baltimore Sun editor in education and diversity, equity, and inclusion. He is the one that spearheaded Black Marylanders to watch. How are you, Kamali? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I just want to ask you, as we are getting to the end of Black History Month, which is a sad time for me because Black history is American history and our story is the story. Can you talk a little bit about your thinking behind the Black Marylanders to Watch series and why did you do it now when the Baltimore Sun has never had this type of series before? Well, I like to think of every month as Black History Month and I I try to do my my part at the Sun to put a little Blackness in everything I do. You know, and I just want to sort of say that uh, this Sunday is, is as you mentioned, our, our last installment of the Black History Month uh, project. And uh, some of the people we're going to be highlighting include uh, our mayor, Brandon Scott, uh, Lamar Jackson of the Ravens and Cedric Mullins of the O's, as well as Erica Bridgeford, uh, the co-founder of Baltimore Ceasefire 360. Um, and as far as how the project came about, uh, it's really kind of modeled after our uh, 25 women to watch, but with an added twist that we added five living legends. Uh, some people who not only have been doing the work, but have been doing it for so long and with such impact that we were forced to recognize them. I think it's important to note at this moment that in our our series with you, Black History Month Conversations, last week we spoke to Dr. Martha Jones uh, from Hopkins University. Uh, We also spoke to Jacqueline Copeland, who's one of the five living legends about art Yes. Uh, in, impact of art in our city and in the country. And our first one was with Erica Richford, thinking about Baltimore City as a place of peace and as the point of passion for her. So we're looking forward to seeing what you do in your work with the Baltimore Sun since Black history, which I agree with, is American history. I want to introduce now Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, one of the 20, 2022 Black Marylanders to watch, a community organizer, a social entrepreneur, uh, the senior pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church right here in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, for nearly two decades, Dr. Brown, despite how young he looks, has been a catalyst for personal transformation and social change. I have a lot to think about when I think about the work of Pastor Brown his work around the Black Church Food Security Network that he launched in 2015, this notion of how to advance health, wealth, and power by helping Black folks to establish gardens on church-owned land and in partnership with Black farmers. In addition to being, being named in 2018 by Baltimore Magazine as visionary of the city, and the Baltimore City Office of Civil Rights presented him with their Food Justice Award, Uh, He was recently inducted into the Martin Luther King Jr. Board of Preachers at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Today, we want to talk about providing hope for the Black community through food and faith. Reverend Brown, how are you? I am wonderful. So great to be with you today. I'm delighted to have you here. Now, I went to your website, um, and you wrote that on the eve of your 30th birthday, you received the epiphany, critique what is and create what should be. Can you talk about how your work has been shaped by this epiphany? Absolutely. I mean, I think up until that point in my life, I thought change happened in one way and or a very short list of ways. And I think I had those thoughts because of what I had seen um, in media, what I'd learned in school, what kinds of narratives were taught in the classroom, what kind of stories are shared uh, online and in the media. And so it was like, okay, if you want to make change, you got to do it like this. You got to do it in a particular way. Be, you know, Dr. King, that's the way to make change or this, that, and the other. And yeah, it was, it was that eve of my 30th birthday it was like, wait, 
there are so many other ways to make change and making change can look like creating and co-creating new systems. Um, in addition to critiquing injustices in the community, which I've been doing throughout my 20s. I mean, in my 20s, everything is problematic. Everything is like, uh, so wrong. And I gave a lot of energy there and I continue to do so. But, you know, that 30th birthday was kind of like, wait, if I spend my whole life critiquing everything that's wrong, what will the lasting impact of that be? And what kind of roadmap or even breadcrumbs might that leave for those who might study my life? And it was like, wait a minute, I, I want to be a part of building something too. And so just getting a wider, a wider lens and a deeper appreciation of how lasting change can happen. And it has doesn't have to be either or, but I wanted to leave something in the tank to create something and not just critique the things that uh, are going on around us. You know, sort of speaking of critiquing the things that go on around us, you know, as the current senior pastor at Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, you know, I'm sure you've probably uh, counseled people through some difficult times. I'm curious about uh, during the time of Freddie Gray, um, can you sort of take us back to, to that time and sort of what you, what you were doing during that time and sort of counseling your, your, your flock? Yeah, in terms of the congregation, I mean, we really leaned on one another. Uh, I remember I was preaching a sermon on a Sunday morning during that time period after spending the week um, in communities around the city, doing interviews, sitting with families when the cameras are gone and really um, helping to process the weight of that moment. Sunday morning comes and I'm preaching a sermon as the congregation expected me to do and doing all the things a pastor does. And during the sermon, my emotions just took over. And I started bawling during the sermon, like ugly cry, full ugly cry, ugly cry during the sermon because the weight of all that I had been doing caught up to me and said, we will not wait another moment. Mm -hmm. In that moment, I break down crying. I get to my knees and members of the congregation came to me and started rubbing me on my back and speaking words of life and encouragement in my hearing. And it was such a powerful moment. I'll take it with, with me for the rest of my life because it's a picture of what we were doing in that time, leaning on each other, mm -hmm. lifting one another up um, and organizing. I mean, we our church was almost like a hub for a lot of great activity too, where people were calling saying, Pastor Brown, I took off work today. What can I do? Or, you know, and I would say, okay, meet us at the church. We're going to game plan our outreach for the day. You know, it became a... Uh, um, headquarters for operations for our congregation and our friends and neighbors. And that was really rewarding as well, because it showed a different way that churches can show up, not just in times of crisis, but um, all the time, really. It's interesting, because when I think about the history of the church, like you know, as a PK, to me, that is one of the essential purposes of the Black church, to be a center where we organize, where we go out into the community, where we take God's word beyond just the four walls of the church. Kind of in the spirit of, of Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement. Come to the church, get built up, and then go and walk all day like Montgomery Bus Boycott, because you have to remember what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I remember that time because you and I worked very closely during that time. We were out in the street together trying to, to reimagine how Baltimore City could, could lean into the moment, mm -hmm. how we can do things differently. Yeah. But at that moment, with all that hope, inspiration, desire for change, it feels like we, we stopped. Mm -hmm. I mean, since then, we've seen our homicide numbers reach 300 plus since that year, and they're not stopping. So can you talk about what we wanted to have happen and then what stopped us from being able to implement that program of change that we were so optimistic about? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm really excited uh, when I think back to that time, the different kind of configurations of mm -hmm. um, outreach and advocacy that happened. I remember even a couple of years before the uprising, I think back, Dr. K, we were doing a, a piece together at Red Emma's. And I remember it was raining that night and people were, I mean, Red Emma's was packed and people were leaning in from the windows to hear that energy. The, the memory of that energy stays with me. And I think even from 2015, similarly, a lot of great energy 
um, uh, emerged during that time. Organizations really helped to, uh, you know, got some definition during that moment. People who had been on the front lines of organizing activism in a certain way, you know, were met with some pivots. They embraced some pivots to even how they did some things. And so I, I don't think all is lost. I, I think the energy of that time remains in different kinds of ways. And in terms of, you know, why did, why did it stop? I mean, a part of it is I think our attention on a lot of it stopped. Uh, the cameras are not as focused on, um, you know, of course the big cameras of national media were here. And then even locally, it was a hyper focus on, this is the only thing we're gonna be talking about. But now that the cameras have shifted a bit, um, the temptation I think is to say, you know, that, that things have stopped. But I think it continues at a more kind of measured pace at this point. But also, I think, you know, we had an opportunity to really see how entrenched systems are. Mm -hmm. And I think we are very much so um, pulled into this idea of these charismatic individuals. Uh, and as an individual, they're going to change things or what have you. Mm -hmm. uh, but systems can withstand the charisma and personality of any individual any day. Um, and so I think about the learnings that we've had to see, oh, the economic system is not going to stand idly by as we attempt to have a more just economic system or policing is not just going to bow out and say, okay, you got me. Um, it's gonna be, it's gonna have to be a marathon. It's gonna have to also be a focus on uh, collective uh, work and um, the the growing of counter systems, which I know we'll talk about later, but that's where my energy is now. And it's like, you need you need to engage systems with systems that can far outlive the lifetime of any individual. You know, uh, so Baltimore City's uh, population uh, continues to drop as the years go on. Uh, you know, you can you can sort of see it in some of the uh, abandoned buildings in certain certain neighborhoods. You know, as someone who is invested in the the farming space, you know, is there anything that we could do or the city could do, say, with some of that empty space and farming? Yeah, I've seen in some other cities that it may be uh, already on the minds of lawmakers uh, today in Baltimore as well. But I've seen them to transfer some of that land into farmland or land for gardens. I've seen some very creative things happening in other places like Detroit uh, around those kinds of programs. It might be something that would work very well for Baltimore as well, especially given our very robust urban farming community. I mean, we have, I'm very proud uh, to be a part of the urban farming and gardening community of city of Baltimore. And I've learned so much. And so I definitely could see some some possibilities around converting some of those spaces into growing spaces and or meditative spaces, especially given the, the emotional and mental health weights that all of us have been carrying for two years. It could be some real promise in going in that direction, at least in some of those areas. So as we turn to talk about the Black Church Food Security Network, which I'm very excited about, and Harriet Tubman Pies, I mean, I have a lot of questions about the sweet taste of freedom in the work you do. I just want to ask you one more question uh, about how I engage with your work, because I think about your freedom school and what we used to do in Baltimore City whenever Baltimore City closed the doors for students. They had a day off. You would open up the church for the freedom school. And then you would bring in people like myself to come in and let's keep teaching our children that there are no days off. That's right. I think about that with, with Dr. Carter G. Woodson's work around miseducating the Negro. How do we train and teach our students our history? Can you talk about the importance of the Freedom School and about teaching Black history? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes, absolutely. It's very important as I go, you know, talk about building systems, well, education is one of those systems and institutions that we have to be concerned about. I think about uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Raymond Winbush at Morgan State University. Um, and he was one of the first persons I heard to say this quote that says, until lions have historians, hunters will be heroes. And in hearing that quote, it really sensitized me to the power of framing the power of narrative and storying, and that all of history has a particular aim. 
It has a particular objective depending on who's telling it. And so I remember growing up in school and learning about Napoleon and that little song they taught me is still in my head in 1492, Columbus said, right? That's still, and any room I go into and I start that, the room can finish what I said. And I think about the ways that we have almost like a conveyor belt been uh, given a colonized educational experience that orients us toward understanding ourselves and our history and the world from the perspective of colonizers from this perspective of the victors of battles and the like, but there's so much more to those stories. And so I'm so glad that, you know, I had the idea. I, really, Dr. K, I got the idea because our Sunday school program was on a downward trend. And I was like, we need something fresh and new up in here. And it was like, okay, what if we can combine our uh, commitments towards spiritual formation with the necessary need of studying our heritage as well. And it's very, very important. I have seen light bulbs go off in the minds of countless thousands at this point, children, as they've gotten information about their history. Um, they, you know, for many of them, they say, all we learn about is Dr. King, Rosa Parks, Frederick Douglass, and Harriet Tubman. Uh, and, and praise God for the, these amazing, amazing freedom fighters and ancestors. But there's so many more. And so having children, given the the opportunity to extend that to children has been a blessing and um, utilizing the church back to what you said as a preacher's kid, utilizing what we already have in our hand to at least start something. I think sometimes people's visions and dreams can be so grand that it pushes them into inaction because it feels like it's too big. And I'm like, no, let's start with what we have. I got a church. I got a multi-purpose room. We got a church kitchen and a sanctuary. Uh, at a garden and church bus. That's enough to start. And I've, I really do pray that even more churches and, and other faith-based organizations would also reimagine use of their current spaces to do those kinds of things because families have sent me thank you cards. Children, now some of these babies, they started with me as babies and now they're in college playing you know, D2 and D1 sports and stuff. And I'm getting a little bit of the teacher experience where they come back and say, Pastor Brown, thank you so much. Uh, this one time you said something and Lord knows I only know what I said, but it left a, it left some type of positive mark in them. It's such a blessing. <laughs> um, you know, one of the themes that uh, that has been through throughout these colloquiums is freedom. Uh, last week, we, we spoke with Martha S. Jones, a professor at um, Hopkins, about Abraham Lincoln's strategic uh, freeing of just the Southern slaves. Uh, and we've also talked about Harriet Tubman. You know, can you talk about what does freedom mean for Black people in Baltimore in 2022? Mm. When I think about freedom, I think about words like agency. I think about words like power, like the, the power to outline our own destiny, the power to enact the highest virtues of our will and vision for our community, the power to organize and execute plans of well-being and safety, uh, wellness and uh, to lean into the highest ideas of what we want individually and collectively, eliminating the barriers and obstacles that systematically prevent the Black community from standing to its highest stature of what it might want for itself. Um, I dare not try to speak for the entire Black community, but those are some of the things that come to mind in terms of just having the ability and the power to sketch, dream, plan, strategize, and execute what it is that is needed on the individual, a family, a social and community level without uh, obstacle and hurdle. Those are the dreams I think that we've all had. I mean, this idea of throughout history, what has been one central dream coming out of the Black community mm -hmm. that goes alongside freedom, being able to systematically enact a, a whole community's mm -hmm. movement towards allowing our children to stand in the greatest version of themselves. Mm -hmm. But we do it going forward. Uh, in thinking about that, we know that, that in this country, Black children are almost three times more likely to live in a food insecure household than their white counterparts. We also understand that when we look at the overall poverty rates in this country, that it's at an 11.4% within the Black community, and the poverty rate in this country is 19.5%. When you think about the impact 
on our households. And then you add to that the pandemic, which caused all this food insecurity in our community. I want you to talk about the Black Church Food Security Network. Why did you found this? And what exactly are you focused on doing? Absolutely. Well, in 2010, we launched a garden at our church out of a desire to address some of the health challenges that were present in our congregation. I'm going to visit with members of our church in the hospital, and I start seeing this pattern of diet-related issues being the culprit that has them in the hospital in the first place. So, you know, uh, this might sound a little bit sacrilegious, but I got tired of just praying about it. I got tired <laughs> of the scripture and walking out. Um, and I was like, what more can be done? And uh, eventually got to the idea of saying, okay, let's grow food on our own land. Because what I saw uh, based on where our church is, is that there are some healthy food options in our community, but there were other kinds of barriers, economic barriers, cultural barriers that kept our, our congregation and our neighbors from connecting with those sources. And instead of going down the path of trying to establish a partnership that would lock us into a subservient posture and be based on the charity of some benevolent entity, it was like, no, let's roll up our sleeves because dignity has to be one of the ingredients that helps to make us well. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we decided to grow our own food in partnership with whoever, but we knew we had to be at the front of the line and the chefs of the experience. After growing at our own church and seeing the benefits, qualitative and quantitative, of just having a food source right outside the church window, the idea came to spread this and scale it through other Black churches as well because these were places also that had high degrees of autonomy from the power structure. So if you're asking the question like, where do organized black people go to speak in a more full-throated manner and stand in the full, more fullness of their humanity, black church congregations are those some of those spaces. And so that's again, a necessary ingredient I was thinking about this thing. Let's get all these churches together. Let's grow food on black church land. Let's utilize these black church kitchens that sit unutilized Monday through Saturday. And it was just an idea rolling around in my mind until 2015, mm -hmm. Baltimore uprising. So when the school system closed down for a couple of days and 80,000 mostly black students do not get breakfast and lunch. When public transportation halts services to certain neighborhoods, uh, when other city agencies back up off of certain black, it was like, okay, wait, wait, wait. This is precisely why it is dangerous for us to have such a high level of dependency on agencies and institutions that are beyond us where we don't have autonomy and voice. Mm -hmm. And that was the catalyst for me to say, it's time to launch this thing that was an idea. It's time to move on it. Called some black farmers like Aaliyah Frazier and others. They started trucking food to Baltimore and I called pastors and I said, hey, we need some help. And we brought it together. And for about two and a half weeks during the uprising, I was driving fresh produce around Baltimore on our church bus. <laughs> and I realized that that was the beginning of the Black Church Food Security Network. And having really just starting with this idea of not what's wrong, but what's strong, like an asset-based community development model. Mm -hmm. what, what does the Black community already have? If we ain't got nothing else, we got churches. <laughs> and, we, and those churches have land and buildings and stuff and people uh, and financial, some level of financial resource. And so it's been my great joy for now nearly seven years to continue organizing Black churches to grow food, reimagine their spaces, and really reconnect with our roots around our relationship with land uh, and food as a part of our faith practice. Hmm. Well, you, you know, you mentioned the, the role that uh, sort of diet can play in health-related issues and, and sort of the role of the, the church. What, what are some ways that uh, children, particularly Black children, can get more involved in sort of far, in the farming side of it, uh, yeah. in the urban space? Yep, yeah, yeah. So one of the things I love trying, uh, helping to organize or encourage they can start by talking to their grandparents. <laughs> you know, when I think about so many of the families in Baltimore City, um, many, uh, especially in our churches, many of our families have roots in North Carolina, South Carolina, 
uh, Virginia, of course, uh, Georgia, and they grew up on farms with eight, nine, 10, 11 brothers and sisters and came to Baltimore during the 20th century at some point uh, for jobs or they ran out of racist towns where the terrorism uh, just ran them off their land. Though they left the South, the lessons, the wisdom, the skills are still within them. I mean, that's what we learned with the Black Church Food Security Network. When we launched it, when we launched our garden at our church, I was about maybe 29 or so years old, knocking on 30. And I thought when I announced this vision, it would be the young adults that came to the front line with me. You got this young revolutionary pastor. Come on, y'all, we go on grow food. But it was the seniors, the ones who remember what it was to grow food, the ones who know how to use a mason jar and can their food. Like those types of skills which are not as lauded and applauded today, but are very important. And now in this current food supply chain issues and pandemic, we recognize how, how more important it is to know how to do these kinds of things. But they were the ones that stepped up. And those seniors that I saw in my church are in all the churches. So the first thing I would say is, let's create these intergenerational spaces where young people can talk to seniors about what it was like for them to grow up down south on the land and as those stories are shared, young people can get um, reminded that that's a part of their story and those roots are within them as well. So it doesn't feel like so like distant and detached. This is a part of your story that you're reconnecting with. So that's one thing. And then two, I think a great way, and we've seen it at our church, is like making sure that your church garden or community garden is child friendly. Um, letting children run and play and learn in a garden. One of the young brothers uh, in our church, he's about three years old or so, his name is Dehani. Dehani is like the unofficial garden coordinator at Pleasant Hope Baptist Church. <laughs> and when visitors come or groups come to check out the garden and he's there, he'll walk them around at three years old. He's eating straight from the garden and he eats anything, even the dirt. So we got to watch him. But <laughs> it's like he's going to grow up with this memory, knowledge and comfort level of being very close to the land. And it's going to be a great help uh, for his journey. And it can be a help to so many more, too. I want to talk about how do we deal with sustained interest. Now, now following your lead, uh, Reverend Brown, during the time of the, the pandemic shut-in, I told my husband, we're going to build a garden because Reverend Brown says everyone needs to have a garden. And we tore up half the land. We had my sons out there and we're growing charred. Really, that's pretty much it. Nothing else really grew. And we were, we were focused on like farming the land, saying exactly what you told us to do. And then, of course, everyone started going back to work. Yeah. Next thing you know, we were taking the garden down because I was doing a grocery list and we fell right back into the routine of yeah. doing things the old way. Can you talk about really the challenges with gardening? Because there's a lot of work that goes into it. And then keeping the being sustained in your interest of doing the long term work. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's such a great question, because it's real, not only on an individual household level, but it's also real for churches that jump into this. It is so easy to get excited for a hot minute and run out there and throw seeds everywhere. Like you said, rip up your garden. Like it is so easy to do it. And one of the hardest parts of my job with other churches is to slow them down and say, wait, wait, this is more than a notion to keep this going. So it's a very real question and issue that so many people, including myself, has encountered. What I have seen is that having a plan, like resisting the impulse to just do and slow down and map out a plan, one that is more likely to be sustained. So for example, maybe now, Dr. K, having a full-blown garden on in your yard is not the thing, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that you can't have something growing in the windowsill. Mm -hmm an herb garden that complements what you get from the grocery store, that when you're cooking, you can just clip, snip, add, season, and go from there, right? And so it's kind of really not thinking that it has to be 50 acres of Swiss chard. No, it could be <laughs> three cups on the windowsill, and that's just where you are right now. You could even look at your calendar and say, listen, these are my busy seasons of the year. 
And I know if I'm super busy here as I tend to be, that's not the best time to go all out. But it doesn't mean I don't I can't do anything. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna scale to the level of my bandwidth during this period, and then I'm gonna grow more expansively during this period. And if I can offer one more thing, don't do it alone. Mm. Having a team approach that might be, and we're, we've been blessed in this city to uh, see your wonderful children. And I love all the updates about the blessings that are flowing in their lives. Uh, but mm. it might be that one of them has a certain job and that's their lane, it ties to with their interests. Another one has another job and your husband has, a, you know, everybody kind of gets a thing. And collectively, like the Wonder Twins of Ultron or Care Bears or whatever generation I'm talking to, uh, you come together and, and you uh, create kind of a, a collective plan for it. It's because it's just more than a notion. And that makes me want to say that we should, with that in mind, have such greater appreciation for farmers who actually do wake up every day and do this and have done it for generations. We should be sitting at their feet as well to say, how do y'all keep this? I can't keep it going five minutes. How have y'all kept it going for five generations? Um, That's something that I think would be great for us too. You know, earlier you mentioned taking inspiration from Dr. King and then realizing that you had to go and make your own lane. Can you sort of talk about Dr. King's message of integration, sort of like, what does it mean in 2022? Well, one of the things I love to think about, and I talked about this the other day, in fact, remaining sensitive to the fact that we have a short uh, time frame, unfortunately, because of the racist and terrorism that was met upon his life, where we have analyzed a very short portion of his journey. And what I like to remember is Dr. King, not as caricature, but Dr. King as husband, father, uh, young adult who is just really leaning. Like we we didn't even see the best of that brilliant black man in his fullness. The best that I can do and we might be able to do is to look in the direction where he was pointing and where he was pointing suggests to me that even he was interrogating and analyzing the message of integration, at least as it was initially presented through his articulation, that he was looking at something that went beyond that. And so many people say that they saw the maturation of his views uh, happening in uh, a a powerful chemistry with the maturation of El-Hajj Malik Al-Shabazz, Malcolm X's views, and how they were coming to some synthesis that even was reaching beyond a simple racial integration that was absent of an analysis of power and self-reliance as a part of the equation too. So the the question of integration, if you're talking about the early king, I think even the older king would interrogate the younger king and say, ah, I'm not so sure. I mean, y'all know about his quote about, I fear that I have led my people to integrate into a burning house. <laughs> he was he was already doing that kind of self-reflection. And I think it's incumbent upon us to do the very same thing to say, well, what, what do we really mean? What, did, what were we really, what was society really trying to do? What were the activists of that day really trying to get at? Was it a simple integration or was it a, to draw closer to the resources that their tax dollars and effort and genius uh, was not being able, they couldn't withdraw from those spaces? Like, I put into this system with my time, my energy, I built half this daggone country, that White House, these schools, my taxes, I'm trying to just get my piece of that. And maybe there was some kind of um, effort by uh, powerful forces to reframe that message to make it just about simple, uh, let's just sit side by side. Why do we have, why do we have black and white clips of that? But we don't have as much footage of those like Fannie Lou Hamer, who was organized in her community in Sunflower County, Mississippi, to grow their own food and build their own houses. I wish we had more footage of that, just that we can have a fuller understanding of the varied ways that those young adults and those elders were working. And it might help to inform how we need to approach the task of furthering justice for ourselves, too. I'm glad you put that out, because I think a lot about Dr. King and about the fact that I've outlived 
Dr. King, like the age he was and what he thought at that moment, that as you grow, I think part of the growth process is the constant interrogation of your younger self. What, what did I believe at that moment? What, what, what defined that belief that I had? How have I changed along the way? I mean, Dr. King at that age had not seen his children grow up. Mm -hmm. So I think the growing up of children, now that I have two college students, having children in college has grown me in a way that when they were in middle school, it did not. Mm -hmm. Seeing the world differently through their experience that he began to change. Like I am actually more fascinated as I was telling, you know, Dr. Claiborne Carson, I'm more fascinated with the older King beyond 63 Mm -hmm. than I am with the Montgomery bus boycott King, the young boy coming mm -hmm. onto the, the spotlight. Mm -hmm. You talked about how we built this country, the White House, all these bills, and we want to get our piece of it. I wonder though, if at some point, when I think piece of this at this age, I think about peace, P-E-A-C-E. -E. Mm. How could I get my within this? Because that is a hard struggle for Black folks to have moments of peace, sand struggle, and resistance. I could not agree with you more. Oh my goodness! And I think for me, you know, peace. I gotta, I gotta share that for much of my earliest years of activism, it focused on legislative advocacy, mm -hmm. and it came to a place in my journey where that. That lane was not giving me anything near peace because I realized as I went down to Annapolis, uh, testifying, doing hearings, meeting with elected officials, I mean, on every level, federal to city council, I was active with a bunch of groups doing a lot of good work and we did some good work. But I also learned, Dr. K, that you can have all the right statistics, you can have the moral argument, you can have the right, the right people, the right witnesses at the table during the hearing. You can have the date. You can have everything together and your bill still won't pass right. <laughs> for no good reason. And I realized that while some people are wired to withstand that kind of journey, it was not for me. Mm -hmm. So I had to pivot to a different place. So now my piece does not come through. Um, maybe reform efforts or kind of going through, that's not where my piece is. My piece is looking at the genius, the brilliance, the beauty, the laughter and joy that's already present at home in the black community. And I think about people, um, I think uh, Malcolm X and so many others have said it, is that we are not, um, we're not outnumbered, we're out-organized. Yes. And it makes me think about what could happen if we organize even more what we already have. Not to say we got to put our heads in the sand about the very real economic and legal and other issues that need to be addressed. But it is to say everybody don't have to crowd that room. I have joy when I go to a one of them nice uh, storefront churches and they still play the tambourine and got the washboard and you stomp that floor and the whole and I can go in there and I can say hey y'all we can do something so we can be healthier we can have greater agency over our food environment that feels and then the church mothers nod their heads and the deacon say all right son we're gonna give it a try that gives me joy and it, it it's it's like a divine alignment it's like I'm a third generation black Baptist preacher who loves farmers and farming and land and learn so much from chefs and others, my life feels like an intersection. And that's where my joy is. So how about I just hang out right there where my peace and my joy is, just in case I got some cousins who need to come get some peace in that neighborhood too. You know, sort of speaking of, you know, farming, chefs, these are all, these are all valuable skills. Is there, is there, what do you think about, Baltimore schools and their role in teaching our, our children some of these these skills. I think they have a they can have a powerful role to play. I'm grateful. I see more and more schools, at least on the local level, not uh, uh, district wide. They're doing some things as well. But right now, I'm thinking about local schools with principals and educators and staff that are in tune with all of what you just said. And they're trying to find creative ways to have their classrooms growing food outside the window of the school, 
or bringing in educators. In fact, I'm gonna be going, uh, I speak at different schools and I'm gonna be doing some, some work with some schools very soon as well. Um, I, I get excited about what I'm seeing happening on the local level. And I can only imagine what can happen district-wide if there's a greater appreciation for how food, farming and land factor into the educating of a whole person. And, you know, if you embrace uh, Paulo Freire, uh, uh, his book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is one of my favorite books. And he, he argues that there's something called the banking model of education, where the thought is that students come in with an empty brain, and it's your job as an educator to put information into that empty brain, which he says is the system that we have now, or problem-posing education, where you recognize the genius already within the, in the student and is the task of the educator to call forth their existing genius. And I think as a district, as an educational system, if we were to embrace more of a problem-posing education and absolutely more of an African-centered approach to learning and wrap food and farming and land around that, it would have a powerful and probably generational impact on the city. Uh, in, in some very magnificent ways, because the truth is food and land and farming intersect with almost everything. Mm -hmm. It's like a bicycle wheel. There's a, there's a spoken there for all of it. And I think you can teach chemistry, biology, math, whatever, pick a subject and farming and food can get you there. So I'd love to see more of that. And I'm more than happy to do anything I can to help encourage more of that happening. I like that notion of the intersection to go back to that for a moment, mm -hmm. um, because even though the, the Whitehead farm failed, right? <laughs> the teachings of that stayed with us because it was during that time when you were home with your families, couldn't go anywhere. And so the things that you may have missed, driving them to practice, picking them up from school, you just didn't have that anymore. But we would sit out in this little garden we created, and I would talk to my sons about peace passion and purpose. Mm. I said, if we can talk about what is your passion and we can figure out what brings you peace and then we can discover what is your purpose, then we can come up with a plan for your life. I said, just like this soil here, we need the soil, we need rain, we need seeds, we need attention, we need love to have something to grow. We're doing the same thing in you. Mm. We're trying to grow the genius that's already inside mm. of you. Mm -hmm. And I would tell my oldest, I said, you know, you're so stubborn. I mean, I'm showing up with a pitchfork. I got to dig the genius out of you, but <laughs> I know it's there. So can you use this food and farming analogy and talk about how we grow the genius in our children? Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, there can be a temptation just to focus on the production side of farming. Mm -hmm. But the benefits that you just said around that emotional, mental, relational benefits and gifts they are so expansive. I mean, I think about that time as well of we couldn't go anywhere. And I remember how I felt initially. It was like, oh, wait, what? But then eventually it was like, oh, yes, good. <laughs> I don't have <laughs> like, can I, if I could be straight up with y'all, I'm so glad y'all didn't have me to come into a studio somewhere. When y'all sent me a Zoom link, I was like, yes, I can put on a dashiki and keep my slippers on. Great. That's what I want in my life right now. And I think if more people were like that honest to say, let me do a emotional scan of where I was once I settled into this new normal mm. and my relationships got better. I noticed some things in my children that I missed when I was in the hustle of bustle of going, going, going. The gift of taking my, Dr. K, I kissed my children on the forehead every single morning because during this time last year, when we couldn't go anywhere, we were watching TV. And, and on the show, a father kissed his sons. And it made me remember, I used to kiss my boys when they were younger. They got a little older, now their feet stink, and I was like, oh my goodness. But now, <laughs> but now I got back to kissing them. And I got to point to that, that moment in the pandemic, and I know it can feel a little weird sometimes for us, but can we acknowledge that there were some silver linings in the pandemic that helped us to slow down, grow, reprioritize, and check in with what's most important? And with farming and with land, it makes you do that because those plants, that, that Swiss chard is going to invite you back to her office every day. You can't leave that Swiss chard, plant it one time and forget about, uh-uh, come back to my office. 
The kale is going to say, wait a minute, you ain't seen me recently. Slow down. <laughs> Sit down, get low, get grounded. And a lot of my friends are mental health professionals, and they tell me about the benefits of even with dealing with anxiety. Actually getting low and getting to the ground is one of the ways. It's called a grounding technique. You can actually be helped to deal with your anxiety. So during this time of farming, you're not just growing or gardening. You're not just growing food for production's sake. The land, the soil, the plants are helping to bring you back into an important alignment as well. Mm -hmm. And that should not be rushed. We shouldn't rush from that. Even as things are beginning to open up more, I pray that we have the sensitivity as a society to say there's some things we want to make sure that we don't lose sight of uh, in, in the going forward. If I can just follow up very quickly something that you just said, that I, I think in acknowledging the silver lining, I wonder though, uh, Reverend Brown, if that's not something that speaks to the humanity of Black folks at this moment. It's like my dad says, he said, you know, one of the things that we have in us is that we can praise in the midst of struggle, that we can understand that it might be dark at this moment, but we remember the light and we know it's coming back. And so I kind of take that into thinking about the pandemic. I'm like, yes, in the moment, I remember the light. Yeah. And now I know exactly what I want. It's about keeping that peace that I learned during the pandemic while everything is opening back up, making sure I don't lose who I am again. That's right. It's because the hustle and bustle has started. Oh my goodness, that's so on point. I think about um, the journal, my journal uh, record is gonna be so important. I know you're a journalist and a writer too, Dr. K. <laughs> Can you imagine a hundred years from now when our descendants read those journals about this time, they're gonna read the heaviness but they're gonna also read about the ways that we found joy and peace and laughter. And listen, if there's anybody to learn from, I would say to the global community, uh, sit at the feet of black people right about now. Uh, just, just because like, I mean, to your, to your point, Dr. K, we have seen, we have seen pandemics of all kinds um, over the course of our forced time in this place. And now this oppressive season, we've seen it. And what I love about us, and I've watched IG, and I love these little things that these memes and other things that people create on IG and the like, that you know we can find something to laugh about, <laughs> something that we can find some humor in it. And I think about how that laughter, that dance, that joy and humor, is like not only a survival tactic. Mm -hmm but also uh, a tactic for our thriving too. And so I think you make me think about all of that. Think about me and my wife walking and holding hands uh, mm -hmm. with our children in the morning. We weren't going anywhere else. Come on, babe, let's walk in the <laughs> We ain't walked in whole hands since we was like teenagers, like making Google eyes at each other. And so those types of things are just so important. And again, farming and food and the land can be an important teacher that brings us back to those lessons over and over again. No, that's all my questions, Dr. K. Mm -hmm. And so then I, I want to come back um, because Reverend Heber, you know, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> I said that we, we're friends here. I just want to ask you about this notion of stone soup. Now, now, I remember, you know, reading that book with my sons and talking about how everybody brings something to the table, your carrot, your radishes, your onions. When I think about the Black Church Food Security Network, I think about stone soup, like everybody brings a little bit of something to the table. And collectively, not only do we have something rich, but everybody then gets Yes, so yes. About bringing things to the table. And, and what else should we go get? Like when we make this soup, what else do we need to bring to the table right now? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I love that. And uh, this stone soup or even gumbo, like, yes, we all have something to contribute. And I see it, Dr. K, I promise you, I see it as I go to different churches and sit. And these are the kinds of quote unquote ingredients that I don't see people talking about. Or not, or not talking about in certain kinds of ways. I mean, as a P, as a preacher's kid, as a PK, you know the assets, the gifts, the genius that is in found within the embrace of a local congregation. So I honor that too. And then I see it when it happens when you can can, can connect that group 
with another church around the corner. And y'all know Baltimore is about five churches on the same block all <laughs> over the city. And so it's like, wow, if we can just think about how we can connect, it not only would help us to create something great and grand together, but it also can reduce that sense of being overwhelmed because you may sometimes feel like if I don't have all the ingredients, I can't eat. Mm-hmm. But no, you don't never have to have all the ingredients. You don't have to. Just bring your best one. Make sure it's your best one now, but bring your best one and others can bring their best ones too. And when I think about, for instance, the fact that the collective black church community is the largest landowner in black America, that's a pretty powerful ingredient. When I think about the fleet of church buses sitting in church parking lots right now, asking for a different purpose and a greater mission, that's in a great ingredient. That's a great ingredient. When I think about these seniors, these beautiful seniors in the congregation that have stories for everything <laughs> and just are waiting for people to ask them one question so they can talk for two hours. That's a powerful ingredient. And then so many young people who are helping us to see that spirituality can be more expansive than the very rich uh, and fundamentalist and even sharp uh, uh, bounds of what we think it means to be in relationship with the almighty. That's a powerful ingredient as well. I'm grateful to be somebody who don't know how to cook, but I know a whole lot of people who know how to cook. And God has blessed me with an ability to bring people in the kitchen together, to bring them to the kitchen, to make sure the soundtrack is playing right, to make people make people feel good about who they are and what they have, and to trust the process that it might get a little messy, as it does in every kitchen, but if we trust it, we can create something together. And that's what we're doing with the Black Church Food Security Network. We're co-creating food ecosystems around the country, anchored by Black churches in partnership with Black farmers. And I see people like Chef Nelson watching, a a dynamic chef uh, uh, in their own right, uh, uh, locked in with us now. I see other educators in the food space, farmers, growers, uh, truck drivers, like my cousin Junebug, who drives the truck for the Black Church Food Security Network. Like, Like, how about, how about, you ever seen those puzzle piece pictures where they take, multiple images of people's faces and put them together to create a new face. That's how, almost how I feel when I think about our work and what we are doing. And even this series, because when I saw the 25 in my brain, I started seeing all of our faces together. And what is that profile when you put those faces together? And of course there's so many more than 25, but just the thought of collectively y'all, we really do have something that we don't have to wait around for somebody else to give us permission to pursue. Now, you mentioned uh, kind of not in the same words that Chef Nelson used, because they're asking about this notion of a cross-pollination of your work with other food justice activist communities. Isn't that the idea of everybody bringing what they have to the table, that notion of finding your lane and doing the work in your lane? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it means for the church side, uh, when I think about my, my family in the food justice and activist communities, uh, churches have some have some uh, confessing to do. Uh, churches have some accountability that they have to take for the ways in which we have. I mean, a lot of the people that I meet in food justice and activist communities have histories of church hurt or trauma they've experienced in churches. The last place they thought they would be hurt, um, and the church community, the Christ, the black Christian community, the black church community, have some, has some atoning to do when it comes to the ways in which we have regarded those who show up with their ingredients and instead of embracing them and and instead of recognizing that we are less than all we can be if we do not fully embrace the full personhood of those who brought their ingredient, um, you know, not not doing that has caused great harm. And so I think from the Christians, uh, black Christian community and the black church community, that atoning needs to happen and needs to continue because those in the food justice and activist spaces are our uh, siblings, our kin, and our teachers. I think God is still speaking. And I don't think God only speaks on Sunday at 11 o'clock. 
And I don't think God only speaks within the four walls of a church or even between the book covers of a Bible. And I love the ways that those who are in the food justice and activist communities have even helped me to expand my understanding of the universe of spirituality. Uh, they remind me of people uh, like uh, George Washington Carver. I was blessed to go to his museum at Tuskegee. And I read his testimonies about how he saw the wonders of God in plants. Yes. Like, I'm so, you know, disappointed that peanuts becomes his legacy. Right. So much Ex exclusively peanuts. Because if you go read his journal and read his words, he was having deeply spiritual experiences in the woods with his shoes off on the land. Mm -hmm. And as God continues to speak and to move, Dr. K, I wonder if churches will keep up pace with the divine. Mm -hmm. And I think our food justice and activist communities can really help us to see the ways that God is still moving and yet speaking that perhaps our traditions and our commitment, our blind commitment to traditions have kept us uh, um, cut off and detached from. I like that you said these deeply spiritual conversations because so was Fannie Lou Hamer when she was planting. So was Harriet Tubman when she was moving. So was Sojourner Truth when she was out doing the shaker dance out in the woods. These deeply yes. spiritual experiences. Maybe it's time to reimagine church. I mean, yes. I think if the I pandemic so. didn't teach us anything else, we don't have to be sitting in the church to have church, right? Mm -hmm. So something that we are learning and are learning the hard way, I think. Yeah. My last question for you, um, Reverend Heber Brown, and the work that you've done in this city and around the country. Uh, as I like to always say, as my nana said, if you, you know, when it's time for you to run on ahead to see how the end is going to be, yeah. how would you like to be remembered? Oh, Lord have mercy. Um, you know, I, I um, wow. I have a charge from God and the ancestors to be faithful to what they are speaking to me uh, uh, regarding my contribution to the stone suit. And I want to be remembered as somebody who tried his best to be faithful and obedient and aligned with what the divine has for me to contribute and I want to be remembered as somebody who helped to inspire the spark in others. Everybody listening to this right now may or may not care about farming and gardening. Like, oh my goodness, will they move on to something else? Like, I get that. But whatever it is that brings people alive, I want to be remembered as somebody who helped to be like the flavor flave to the spark of genius in their lives. For those who don't know, Flavor Flav is a hype man in mm -hmm. hip hop. He was a part of the group called Public Enemy. And his role as a part of the group was to get behind Chuck D and the other rappers and say, yeah, boy. And he was very <laughs> loud. And he cheered on his bandmates in ways that helped them to keep on going. Mm -hmm. I want people to remember me, remember me as a, as a faith-filled flavor flave. And for real, a cousin. I claim cousins in a heartbeat. I'm super relational. And so I pray that people remember me, remember me and think of me as, as kin, like their favorite cousin. Um, because that's how I feel about you and so many others, like parts of my family. And I'm just so blessed out of all the generations of humans that God has given me the privilege to dance around this planet with these cousins at this time. Oh, that's beautiful. Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III, uh, one of the 2022 Black Marylanders to watch, the senior pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church and the founder of the Black Church Food Security Network. It's an honor to be able to call you friend. Thank you for the work that you do in this city and for joining us today. And Kamau Hyde, the Baltimore Sun editor in education and diversity, equity and inclusion, uh, kind of the spearhead behind the Black Marylanders to watch series. Thank you so much for joining us in our Black History Month conversation. Thank you for having me, Dr. K. It's been an honor and a privilege. It has been. And for folks who are watching 
All of these interviews are available on the Carson Institute's website. Keep your eye out for work that the Carson Institute for Race, Peace, and Social Justice that we're doing. On March 1st, we will be hosting a conversation in person with the Deputy President of Kenya, Dr. William Ruto, will be in town, and he's coming to the Carson Institute to talk about what does it mean to work for peace in a country where peace isn't exactly supported, and the connections between African and African American history. Thank you so much for your time and we'll see you again. Thank you again, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K. Thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, words are a powerful medium that effectively examine critical moments in American history. So use yours wisely.